Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. All right, let me invite you to open your Bibles to the Song of Songs, otherwise known as the Song of Solomon. This morning we're going to be reading and then studying together chapter 2 of this greatest song. The Song of Songs, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, there Solomon writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is the bride speaking first. She says, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. And then he replies, as a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. And then the rest of it is her. (laughs) As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come. The voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs, and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. So arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. O my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet, and your face is lovely. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes, that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He grazes among the lilies until the day breathes and the shadows flee. Turn, my beloved, 
be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft mountains. All right, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the revelation of your word. We thank you for the things that you have revealed in it for us, and especially this morning. We ask that you would pour out the Holy Spirit, that you would so exalt the biblical ideal of marital love, and underneath that and all around that, the eternal love of Christ, that we all, in our own ways, would be willing to wait, to put off sin in order to have more and more of the things you call good. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I saw an ad the other day. I was a child extolling the virtues of our society. Which tells you all you need to know. A child extolling the virtues of our society. One being that patience is not a virtue, but rather impatience. Impatience is a virtue, he said. Give it to me now, because nothing deferred can possibly be better than it is right now. Nothing is wonderful enough to merit the patience and the sacrifices required to receive whatever it is as wonderfully as one possibly can. It's a terribly wasteful way to think, particularly when there are things worth the wait. And one of those those things is love, as depicted in our text this morning. Uh, It's the biblical ideal that's meant to mark our Christian marriages, and my, how wonderful that love is. That for it and by it one might pass on the pressure of romantic immediacy and lustful spontaneity without giving it really even a a second thought? Do we dive into those things impatiently? The glaring issue is that we are not as romantic, we are not as hopeful, we are not as captivated by a vision of Edenic love as we should be. But how I pray that we will be different. That we'll be like this bride so exalting their love that married or not will pass on lust if only to have that love and or its original as purely and pleasurably as possible that will put our good desires on ice until God is pleased to bring the spring. And so let's come to our text where an adjuration to wait is sandwiched by two of the most beautiful poems ever penned. Both on the the tantalizing richness, loveliness of their heavenly love as a husband and a wife. And I just want to tell us, it really does exist, that love. It really does exist. It's not a Bigfoot. It may be a mystery, as Paul calls it in Ephesians chapter 5, but it is not a myth. So let's consider the first poem here in verses 1 to 6 where the main theme seems to be 
the banner of his love. His banner over me is love, beginning in verse 1. We're reminded, that is, of how distinct she is to his heart. She leads off again by exuding still more of that modesty that we saw a week ago. Note that I did not say self-pity or low self-esteem. It's not esteem that this woman lacks when she says that she's a rose or a lily. Far as flowers go, those two flowers are some of the most elegant in all the world. Okay, So she's not hunting for more flattery here from her husband as if all of her value as a woman depends upon it. And we need to be wary of that, ladies. Take your cue from this bride. Understand your God-given elegance and be settled in what He says about you. That you have a, a worth and a value which is yours simply because you are a human being of the female variety. You're a rose. You really are. You're a lily. And yet, see, while stating her own elegance, her own awareness of her own elegance, she still displays the utmost modesty about it. She does not see herself as in any way outstanding in that sense. Now, she is typically lovely, typically lovely, one of thousands alike. So, she's this beautiful balance of dignity and humility. She is a, a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys, meaning, again, she's a one of, right? She's, she's incredibly common is what she is saying. But guys, listen now, that does not mean she wants to be esteemed like that by her man. And befitting of the theme, then, he assures her she is unique to him. She is not one of thousands alike. She is one in thousands distinct. Brothers, your wife will be greatly helped to hear from your lips, verse 2, as a lily, what does he say? He doesn't say among the field. He says, as a lily among brambles, thorny vines, as a lily among brambles, so is my love, among the young women. So do you hear what he said to her there? He said, however common you may think you are, and however common you may actually be, you're the only lily to me. Right? Aw. Right? You're the single rose. And so brothers, let me say how we need to labor after this so it's not just a thing that we say, but it's a thing that we actually believe because we've so disciplined ourselves on the basis of our covenant with her before God to so know her and treasure the loveliness we find and to so disinterest ourselves also in all others in that way that she really does become and abide outstanding in our eyes. And so guys, how are we doing in framing our lilies? If we aren't doing well, I agree with the brother who in his commentary charges us to repent and to pray 
asking our Lord to help us see our wives and then honor our wives privately and publicly as a lily not among the fields, but a lily among brambles. Not as one of, but one in, chief among all beside. We need to pray that He would help us to kill our lust and to, to reign in our eyes and to treasure her, and to target her, and to treat your wife as your one and only. And as to that, this man is the model for us. And in return for his concision, his uh, shortness, she offers a soliloquy. She's the rest of the chapter. She likes to talk, and it's good. She too, verse 3, offers a comparison for him. As an apple tree, you know, I woke up this morning and I asked Jenny, I said, you think I'm your apple tree? She said, no, my peach tree. You're my peach tree. She likes peaches. Anyway, as an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. And in this way, she further extols his love For her, his words are not insubstantial flattery. She says there's real substance behind it. And as we head that way, first notice the images they use for each other here. Listen, in a day that's so intent on confusing the genders, or even eliminating them altogether, where women are told they've got to be as men to be real women, and men are told that being more effeminate is the new masculine. I think it's a welcome sight here to see a woman being happily affirmed by a man as indeed a flower, as well as that man then being extolled by that woman as not a flower, but a tree. Okay? A flower, friends, is lovely and dainty, and soft, and to be frank, typically physically weaker than a ruddy and rooted tree. The picture she paints of his love is of a relatively vulnerable lily finding additional, not her only, but additional stability in happy proximity to this sturdy and life-giving tree. That's the picture here. And not just any sort of tree, but again, as I said, this apple tree. Okay, so some trees, they give shade, but they give no fruit. Others give fruit, but they give little shade. But if you know anything about apple trees, she's saying this guy gives a lot of both, shade and fruit. He was a sweet providence, a sweet provision to her from God. So with great delight, she says, I sat in his shadow. This lily, she sat in his shadow and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He provided her with two very, very valuable things. Protection and I think we can say pleasure. Protection and pleasure. And as to those two things, men, listen, first, we must be protectors. We must be protectors of women in general, yes, but most certainly of our wives. Well, let me put it this way. 
Maybe this will land with singles. We aren't to be predatory. Godly men shepherd kings the like of Jesus are protectors, not predators. They don't view women as prey to be consumed. But as Nathan said to David about Uriah's Bathsheba, lambs to be protected at the very cost of our lives. Which finds particularity in marriage. So again, Ephesians 5. We'll go there often. Husbands, Paul says, love your wives. How? What is the model? What is the example? As Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. And so brothers, I pray that there's not a wolf among us here this morning. But a room full of shepherds. Or to our poem, I pray, we're apple trees and not bad apples. That we're apple trees for our lily and not thorns that choke out her life by things like verbal artillery or parental inactivity. Leave it all to her. She bears that weight. Or spiritual passivity. Or soul-scarring immorality. And just general cowardice. That's the worst kind of weak sauce. And weak men, so long as they remain unchanged, cannot be but weak lovers. So see this man's strength. He's her shade. He takes the heat for her. So she can live in the cool of the day. He edifies her. He defends her. He works for her. He leads her. He stands tall for Christ for her. Her protection is His purpose. And it is His glory. And connectedly, so too is her pleasure. And so verse 4, it appears he takes her on a date. He brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me was love. There it is, the theme. But what is it actually? His banner over me was love. The thing is this, with regards to her alone, his entire mission was love. That is, to be clear, all that God means by marital love. There's a verse in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, I believe it's verse 5. It says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And, and while Paul is talking about their apostolic ministry, I think it fits well with every husband's husbandry. Ladies, how might that change the air in your heart or in your home or in your marriage if your husband lived by those words? If his banner over you 
was love. If his sole ambition was to make out Christ for you, if his marriage plan was mission love, if that was his filter, nothing in this relationship but what agrees with and intensifies our love, if every day it was off to the banqueting house, the house of wine, to be more and more intoxicated with our love together. You say, ladies, uh, I don't expect that, Brian. Dear woman, expect more, not less. And brother, create that expectation. It is not a good sign of your love if your wife has low expectations about it. This man's love for his bride made her sick with love. (laughs) Not sick of it, for what it's worth. Sick with it. It is a good sickness, if ever there was one. It's a sign of heart health if in marriage you are sick with love like this. Simply put, his love has made him imminently, preeminently desirable to her. She wants him. In the words of the poem, she wants to taste the sweetness of his fruit. So, whereas one said, she desires love's consummation here, it may be more apropos to say she desires, verse 5, love's consumption. You see that? She say, sustain me, with raisins. <laughs> Eat something here. Consumption. Sustain me with raisins. Refresh me with apples. So, to be sick with love is to be full of it and want more. <laughs> it's to be faint for it. And therefore, it's with good reason that this poem ends with an exclamation point. Do you see that there? At the end of verse 6. He's there to give what she now feels she needs. As with her protection, so also as an overflow, her pleasure. It says there, verse 6, His left hand is under my head and His right hand embraces me. Exclamation point. It is, I think, a physical consummation of the love that's worth the wait. A love that particularly prizes, protects, and becomes a pleasure to her. That's poem one. His banner over her was love. Now there's a second poem to further exalt this love here. And the theme really, I think, is his call. Arise, my love, my beautiful one. And so we we skip over verse seven for just a moment to verse eight where it seems after some time apart, she takes a peculiar delight in his approaching, right? It so thrills her heart that she can't help but have us see it with her. And so it's sort of a heart flutter here. She says, the voice of my beloved. (laughs) I'm sure that's what Jenny says to the kids when she sees me pulling in the driveway. Here he comes. Behold, see, she wants everybody to see it. Behold, he comes, leaping over mountains. 
Yeah. Bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. That will earn you points, ladies. Right? He's a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind, notice, our wall. Not the wall. Our wall. Gazing through the windows. Looking through the lattice. In other words, his approach is to her poetry in motion. So no, he's not a peeping Tom here, much less that predatory creep. He's not a wolf, he's a stag in springtime. He's her beloved. What he is, is her single-eyed bridegroom. He's the one who sees none but his lily. She's urged him, remember, back in chapter 1, draw me after you, let us run together. And here he's come to do precisely that. Draw her. So She has him say it twice for emphasis, verses 10 and in verse 13. My beloved speaks and says to me, arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. And what we're to notice first is his reason for doing so. As I said, it's springtime, which he communicates in so many words. He wants her to see, verse 11, winter is past. Winter is past. The rain is over. It's gone. The sun has come out in all of its life-giving warmth. And so the flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing, he adds, has come. Indeed, the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs. The vines are in blossom. They give forth their fragrance. Just smell. It really is the loveliest poetry. And by it, he's appealing to all her senses. Her mind, her eyes, her ears, her taste buds, her breath, her heart. It's no longer cold. It's no longer cold out. It's no longer dreary, no longer colorless, no longer silent, no longer barren. Now again, it's springtime, meaning it's the time. There is a right time. So we're going to get to. It's the time for love to awaken, to stir itself up, to find expression in marital converse and intimacy. And there is something romantic about spring, isn't there? It's beauty from ashes, warmth for the chill, color for the colorless life, we might say, from the dead. In a sense, it's the season of resurrection. It's a seasonal providence preaching to all of our senses. God will make all things new again. And so brothers, are we ministering to our wives like that? Are you purposefully, if not playfully, inviting her to come Come on out. Enjoy life with me. A new thought for me this week. Healthy marriages 
springtime marriages, are a testimony. They join the chorus of spring's many wonders to sing that resurrection theme over the course of, God willing, many decades. They preach, there really is a new birth. There really is a risen Christ. There really is a Holy Spirit. There really is a resurrecting God. There really is a a gospel hope. And so spouses, are we infusing each other with the warmth of that kind of spring? Even in winter? Are our marriages rich with that new life? How might you put away the frost today? How might you clear that hovering rain cloud? How might you set a new fire to old love? Men, I want you to see, even though she's the one who's narrating it here, it is the man she has leading in this. And so I ask us, as he earlier bore the heat to give her shade, are we also bearing her winters to hurry spring to her heart? Are we coming with that single eye, not just to lay her down, but to lift her up? Are we tending to her? Are we bearing her burdens? Are we weeping with her when she's weeping? Are we praying for our wives? Are we nourishing her in the Word of God? Are we pursuing all our joy in her joy in Jesus Christ? You see those commercials with like the Irish spring soap stuff? And they're just like rubbing it on, they lather it all up, and then they, they smell it like that? Are we that kind of smell? Do we smell like spring to our wives' hearts? Are we bringing spring with us? We'll see how having established the season, he doubles down on his desire. He says, verse 14, O my dove, in the cleft of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. For your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. He's, what are you doing here? He's he's wooing her, right? Let me see you. Let me hear you. Lest this springtime turn to winter for me. It's as if the whole world is going to grow cold and, and pale unless he's able to be with her in a foxless way. He wants to be with her undistractedly. And likewise she with him. And so he enjoins her here. What? Catch the foxes for us. Catch the foxes for us. Those little foxes that spoil the vineyards for our vineyards are in blossom. And I for one don't think there's much mystery to what he's enjoining. It has to do with nuisances both in their marriage and I think also in their marriage bed. As a vine dresser, remember from chapter 1, she has experience in catching things that would otherwise spoil the spoil, so to speak. 
And so he's asking her, have you ever seen Peter Rabbit? Right, they run in there, Mr. McGregor. He's not a very nice man. Okay, put that aside. He's asking her to be sort of a, a nice Mrs. McGregor here with respect to their vineyards, their blossoming love and its physical consummation. He's saying, help me serve and then cultivate the springtime in our marriage. Dear ones, listen. What are the foxes? What are the foxes threatening your marital vineyards? What's stealing away the spring and leaving winter and rain and barren silence between you? Is it a cold word this morning? Is it an unforgiving spirit? Is it inconsiderateness? You really don't think of each other much at all anymore. Is it sexual immorality? Are there misplaced loves that are displacing this love? Are you holding unauthorized fire too close to your chest? How about your walk with Jesus? Is your walk with Jesus doing well? Is it healthy? Because that does matter. If that's not well, little else will be. But whatever it is, what he's getting at here is we need to detect it and we need to catch it and then we need to kill it. We need to dispense of it. And so do see what seems to be his fox trap. If the flow of the poem suggests anything, it seems to be, that fox trap seems to be dearest fellowship with her. Let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. Right? For they are sweet and they are lovely to me. It's, hey, arise. Come on out. Let's be together. And let's take a walk. And yes, let's even talk. Imagine. Let's talk to one another. And let's let love blossom. Meaningful fellowship with one another, husband and wife. Meaningful fellowship will exile miscreant foxes. And she is all about it. She's all about it. In one of the great lines of the, the song, she says, verse 16, Yes, my beloved is mine, and I am his. It's a telling statement of, of willful belonging, covenantal devotion, real possession, even a, a righteous kind of jealousy. That's mine. Far from disinterested spouses, just sort of passing each other throughout the course of a day. These here, they have a shared and felt ownership of each other. That is my stag. And I am his dove, period. Which, let me tell you, is only fitting in marriage. This good kind of possessiveness doesn't belong in any other stage of courtship. 
It doesn't belong in dating. It doesn't belong even in engagement. If you're engaged, you're not married. There's no one flesh union yet. My man, she doesn't belong to you. And he doesn't belong to you either. That kind of possessiveness is out of place until you say, I do. It's not a cultural thing, it's a biblical thing. Until you say, I do. Marriage is its rightful home, which is only reinforced in the song by the way she closes. It's an invitation from her to him. Hey, I said you were like a stag, but now what does she say? She says, be that stag. You see that? Come, be like that stag in spring. He's approached and gazed and communicated his longing to be with her in full blossom, and on the basis of their union, she responds, if I may say so myself, rather volcanically. In other words, he's no longer just gazing at her. The word she uses here is grazing. He's grazing among the lilies. And she invites him further to turn and settle in all stag-like on cleft mountains. Settle there. He's no longer bounding over. He's, He's settling on cleft mountains where, by the way, verse 14, she's been hidden away. That's where she is. And she's inviting him to do so all night long until the day breathes and the shadow flees. So in the Bible, in this song, in God's wisdom, I just want to say all of that right there, I think it's getting at what you think it's getting at. And it has no place but in the marriage bed. The Bible wouldn't be affirming anything except that in the context of marriage. What I want you to hear in that then, positively, is that that stuff has a place. Praise the Lord. Okay? Where it is so very good and glorious as this physical climax of a love that is worth A heavenly kind of love. So, now, let's come to the bride's adjuration in verse 7. It's like she hits pause in the middle of these intoxicating love scenes that she, by the way, is providing to give a sober word about everything she said. She says this, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you, what? Go for it. No. No not stir up or awaken love, wait for it, until there is a time, there is a spring, it pleases. So, what's the wise word? It's a word to females. Coming into the age of love to delay that gratification. It is, as one put it, a word to girls 
whose, quote, bodies are saying yes, whose instincts for intimacy are saying yes, whose suitors may be saying yes or at least please. It's a word to them, just say no. Wait for this intimacy, not forever, but just for now. Don't sell yourself short of this kind. Remember we called it a week ago, the Romane Conti love? Don't sell yourself short of this love in all of its particular loveliness. Don't spoil it. Wait for it. So just a few thoughts. Just a few thoughts here. Let's just be clear. These daughters, historically, historical context here, these daughters were much younger than we might assume at first. Some of them maybe even preteens. And I say that to say this. God evidently wants these kinds of things appropriately taught to young people. The song isn't rated X. It's not rated adult. These young girls are A, if not the, primary audience throughout the song. These daughters here. And so folks, God help us. If we have turned over our children to, I don't know, Disney's lecture hall on love and marriage and intimacy. In a day when the average age of pornography addiction is said to be in the single digits, and toddlers are the targets of sexually twisted messaging, or a child can, in one day at school, be fully educated by his little young peers on homoeroticism, God help us if we don't deeply disciple them in the divine loveliness of marital love and biblical sexuality. So wives and wives-to-be, please see, like this bride, you have a time-sensitive ministry, specifically to girls entering the season of love. It's to excite them like crazy about it. Right? That's what she's doing here. While at the same time, adjuring them, to love God's good designs about it. And I bring the men in here too and say, spouses, parents, it is our duty then to so exalt heavenly love in our marriage that it will be extremely difficult for our daughters, our children, to fall for anything less than that. Who wants rotten apples in the morning or ever when they can have fresh apple pie in the evening? You just got to forgo it for a little bit and then you get glory. You eat what's rotten, you will have a dysfunctional stomach for what's really, really good. 
But how will they know what's rotten if we are not teaching and modeling what's heavenly? If we aren't affirming good desires as good, and yet as to exercise needing to be placed in God's care and God's provision and God's timing. If we aren't helping them to see that Anna and Hans are not the model of true love. That was dumb. She didn't even know his last name. Come on, Anna. If we aren't showing them a reality, that's way better than the dreaming. If fathers, we aren't lavishing our daughters in a love, we'd like for them to standardize that proves lusty dudes a waste of their holy waiting. If we're not giving them, guys and girls, sons and daughters, a vision of a love spouses that is worth the wait, there's blessing in it. Not just because it's right, but because it's so good. Friends, The charge to wait until I do is not the bride's attempt at killing joy as some charge today. It's her attempt at preserving their joy. There's nothing but pain and hurt and destruction lying on the other side of that. She's trying to preserve joy, enrich joy, Corral it all for a sweetest season. Again, we can pray for many, many decades of blessed consumption. Here's how one put it. Quote, People who believe the Bible on sexuality are sometimes viewed as those who won't let others have any fun. But that's not it at all. Now listen carefully here. It's one of the best lines you'll ever hear on this kind of thing. We actually want people to have the most pleasure with the least regret. Say that again. We actually want people to have the most pleasure with the least regret. We want people to be more than dogs, he says. We want them to enjoy the comprehensive, interpersonal, union of soul and body in the exclusive, permanent, monogamous, life-producing covenant called marriage, end quote. I think that says it perfectly well. That's what the bride has poetically described in chapter 2. A love that's worth the wait. But now I'll segue to Christ like this. What if you haven't waited? What if you haven't? What if, as we all are, you are a sexual sinner? What if, as you are, you are one of a world of sinners? Jesus longs to be gracious to you. If you're an unbeliever, you're not a lily. You're a bramble. 
But Christ wore a crown of brambles. He wore a crown of thorns that if you would, you might be crowned even this morning with grace and divine elegance. How many identifiably sexual sinners, just go read through the Gospels, how many identifiably sexual sinners did Jesus receive and save? So many. So trust it. There is no sin from which Jesus cannot save you. There is no sinner beyond the saving love of His life and His death and His resurrection. And so the call to you this morning is just to arise and come away with Him. It's to repent and to believe in Him. And He will gather you up as one of His very own. Which brings me to us, beloved. Let me ask us, are we waiting for Christ? Are we like those five virgins in the parable? There's ten of them, but are we like the five? Are we like the five at the ready for the bridegroom to come? Are we sick with love for Jesus? Or let me ask it this way. If that sickness is, as I said, a sign of health in a relationship, how might we be found sick like that? I can assure you, it will not be by thinking less of Christ's love, but more. By believing His love really is the most excellent love. That alone will help us when we are being tempted to click that link. To turn that head. To cheapen our dignity. To degrade our bodies. To cave, as it were, to Solomon's poverty. This is it. This is the only thing that will help. Being intoxicated with the incomparable love of Christ, such that we have no taste at all for the cheap but costly wines of sin. Dear ones, the greater we find His love to be, the harder it will be to fall for anything less. And what excellencies our poems deliver for us to consider here. Maybe each one of them could be a meditation for you this week. How this apple tree bore the atoning tree for us. To protect us from all that would destroy us. And afford us then the sure promise of pleasures. Not for 50 years, 60 years, but like 50 or 60 trillion and then forevermore. How though one of that world of sinners, Christ bought us at a price and made us each part of His own bride, that one in trillions distinct to Him. Oh, you say, Brian, listen, I hear that, but I'm that trampled lily. I'm that rose that's been passed around. I hear you. But I want you to hear this. Jesus is the most forgiving lover. 
Are you one of His? If you are, then you are still a lily, not among the fields, but among brambles. His love, you're His dove, you're His beautiful one, you are His, period. Remember what Isaiah says, a bruised reed He will not break, nor will He quench a faintly burning wick of love. No, like this man, but way better. Even the best man. Jesus longs to give us what we really do need. For our security, He gives us His embrace. For our faintness, He gives us His faithfulness. For our love, He gives us His love. Oh man, how He does love to bring us to His banqueting house. And how we ought to love to go, to gather, to have His love stir up our love again so that until He appears to call us away with Him, we will boast a stirring, fox-catching testimony to anybody who's looking on. My beloved is mine, and I, I am His. We might say, will be as a bride, exalting a love that's glorious consummation is well worth the wait. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. Oh, how I pray that it would take root within our hearts such that it could never be plucked up. Put away every enemy of our souls. Put away every distraction. Let the word of Christ, this word, bear much fruit in our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.